0: Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. Thirty years of international treaties like the Paris Climate Accords have not reduced global carbon emissions. Oregon State University economist Bill Jaeger says that's because most people won't support climate policies whose biggest benefits are likely to arrive after they've died. So Jager says we need a paradigm shift that around the world, we need courts to set legal standards that enshrine the right to a stable climate. Bill Jager joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. It's great to have you on. I, I want to start with some of the basics here. Your introduction begins, the climate change problem is an externality
1: problem. Can you remind us what an externality is? Sure. That's a, a term we use in economics to refer to effects of something that that I may do in a transaction in a market, but that have effects on on someone else who wasn't involved in that transaction, like uh, you know, air pollution or, or smoking or... Uh, or, or noise, if I play my stereo loud late at night, that's that's an externality uh, that affects my neighbors. How does that
0: relate specifically to climate change?
1: Well, when we emit, uh, when we do, just about everything we do in our day-to-day lives has some effect on uh, emissions into the atmosphere and those uh, greenhouse gases are building up. And so it's a global externality when uh, we all, uh, Go about our day-to-day lives. We're doing things that have, over a long period of time, led to a buildup of greenhouse gases. And the feedback of that is that it's changing the climate and in ways that are, that are warming average temperatures and causing more extreme weather events, et cetera.
0: You use a, a, an even more specialized term to describe the problem of climate change, one that uh, I guess economists have, have used for more than 60 years now. You say it's Kosian,
1: and I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that name correctly. What does it mean? Sure. Um, well, it's a reference to an economist, Ronald Coase, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics a long time ago, and and uh, uh, his most famous paper is called "The Problem of Social Cost," and it's really fundamental to uh, the way we think about how we create rules in the world. That um, hopefully, in doing so, we we want these rules to help um, to help people get along, to interact, to allocate resources better. One of the key ones is, is property rights and ownership. We, we rely on ownership of, of a private property. And, and then we have all other kinds of institutions um, related to things that are more common property. And the, the Kosian idea that really does uh, form the boundary between economics and law as it relates to property rights, says gets at an issue of how important it it can be uh, whether in the case of an externality, the right or the liability goes one way or the other. If 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 I have the right to pollute or you have the right to air that's free of air pollution or if I have a right to smoke or you have a right to breathe clean air in a classroom on a university campus, that's in a sense a Kosian um. Issue about which way it should go. And what Coase really focused on, um, his main point really in that paper was it, it can be incredibly important uh, which way that property right or that liability goes, especially in cases where there's no possibility of negotiating over it, of, of, you know, if if there's if you have a right to to smoke in a room, I could, I guess, offer to pay you to stop smoking. Um, but in many cases, the situations are too complex, there are too many people involved, and it's not at all possible uh to negotiate or to solve that externality problem. Huh. And just and to bring this specifically
0: to climate change, I, I guess the, the point is that globally um humans in the form of corporations or countries we have essentially now the the right to pollute uh and and the question is um can we enshrine and codify the the right to a stable climate
1: uh, right well it, so the reason we can think of it as having a de facto right to pollute is because we we could just let we we let um, we burn things and burn fossil fuels and the, the greenhouse gases go up into the atmosphere and, and nobody can stop us really. It's, it's as if you had a, a population along a river upstream and a downstream population. The upstream population can, can pollute the river and um, there may not be any way for the downstream population to, uh, to influence that. But in terms of of codifying um, the right to a stable climate, um, there's a distinction between the idea of trying to actually legislate or create a right to a stable climate, which I I think would would have all kinds of political obstacles. What what I focus on and what is going on in a lot of um, court cases around the world um, is the idea that. Maybe if we look carefully at our constitutions and other laws, we might recognize that the right to a stable climate is implicitly already there, and that we just need to to go back and interpret um, uh, laws about human rights or our constitutions more carefully. And, and that's and we've seen some some examples of that recently.
0: And we'll we'll talk more about that um, mm-hmm. as we go. But I want to turn back to some of these ideas in economics that, that uh, help explain why we are where we are right now. And the, your, the metaphor of the river is helpful because that is a kind of a spatial one. But another distinction that, that you really focus on here is, is time-based. How does the time scale involved in climate action, in, in emissions reductions, how does that complicate solutions to climate change
1: Uh, yeah it really complicates it i mean you can think of another atmospheric example of pollution um uh, the cfc's and the the deterioration of the ozone layer that was a problem that was recognized several decades ago but it was something that moved fairly quickly that that we recognized that that using uh chlorofluorocarbons led to a deterioration of the ozone layer that had harmful effects on people Fairly quickly, within a few years, and the countries involved in in producing and consuming those um, CFCs quickly came up with a solution, and and we've mostly gotten rid of of CFCs. And it was because of the short time frame between between the idea that okay, if we stop using these CFCs, the ozone layer will heal itself in a, a relatively short period of time with climate change, we don't have that short period of time part of the equation. Um, The models that I've used, looked at, um, ones done by different groups uh, over over several decades to try to understand how changes in uh, human behavior could affect uh, the evolution of greenhouse gases and and temperature and, and climate. They show that that if we reduce greenhouse gas emissions now uh, by large amounts say over the next decade, the benefits, the bulk of the benefits from that change, won't occur until 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years from now. So, the, to get to the point where the the net benefit or the the benefits overall of taking um, strong actions to reduce greenhouse gases will mostly benefit future generations. And not the people being asked or or asking um, to uh, to reduce um, their use of fossil fuels, for example.
0: Hmm. But I'm sure we can all think of examples where an individual, say a, a parent, is willing to sacrifice something in their present uh, for the good of future gener- generations. You know, and maybe if they're thinking very specifically for their kids. Are you saying that that we don't do that on the collective level? I mean, are there economic or social science theories for for why that kind of thinking doesn't scale up?
1: Yeah, it's 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 certainly true, and and I think we most people listening will think that yeah, they would make sacrifices uh, for their children, maybe even for their community um, after they're passed. Um, but, but assumptions about what we call in economics individual rationality and collective rationality—we don't find examples where um, larger groups of people, populations of, of the state of Oregon or of, of nations, um, voluntarily make decisions to do things that really make them self, make them worse off as a group, um, and that the benefits come mostly. Um, after they're gone, to some degree, yeah, it's true. we 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 think we would sacrifice to um, to benefit our children. But these models for climate change actually, um, you need you need to go beyond your children's lives to in in many cases come up with a uh, an estimate that the net benefits are going to be positive. They're really long legs uh, between the full, Fully benefiting from the costs that are imposed—that would be imposed now—if, for example, we had a, a cap and trade or a carbon tax policy implemented over the next decade or two. Mm.
0: Um, I'm still—I guess—I'm wondering if—if if you think that we are globally being rational about the near-term costs, because what you're saying is the benefits. Um, are very real, but they go out decades and decades. But I mean, so for example, one of the ideas of a program like Oregon's Cap and Invest is that some of the money generated by, by the reductions, it can be used to, to ease the transition to a, a more carbon-free economy. So are we overestimating the pain, the cost, the near-term cost of these policies
1: um, that's a great question. And in a sense, yes, we, I, I mean, if you're asking about is public opinion, public perception of the cost of a, of a program like the cap and trade or or carbon tax, um, it, public opinion compared to economic models that have estimated how an efficient policy could achieve pretty significant reductions in greenhouse gases, those models estimate the cost to be quite low, uh, like 1% of, of, of income over, over a period of time. Um, I think part of there's, uh, to some degree, the public is not familiar with those kinds of models and studies. It may be that policies couldn't be implemented as efficiently as they uh, are assumed to be in these, in these, um, economic modeling studies. But it's also true that, um, th- there's a, there's a, um, There's a disconnect or there's a difference between um, where the costs are going to affect certain groups of people who know who they are. That is, there are people in sectors of the economy who fear that um, climate policy will will negatively affect them in their um, livelihood, in their employment, in their sector of the economy, whereas People who might actually benefit from carbon po- from climate policies, people in renewable energies, in solar energy, and wind in the, in energy, um, if if a car if a climate policy were implemented, and suddenly there were there were more jobs in those areas, the people who would benefit from those probably don't sort of see a clear line between a climate policy and them getting a job in um, in solar energy five years from now. Hmm.
0: I just want to remind folks, if you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with Bill Jager. He is a professor of applied economics at Oregon State University, and his recent paper argues that decades of international treaties have proven ineffective at addressing climate change and that our best hope could come from the courts. You know, where, where you just left off, it reminds me of of another thing. I guess I'm just wondering how much of the political ineffectiveness or inaction um, is a feature of you know the global power of fossil fuel companies and and their connections to many many governments, including our own, as opposed to popular
1: opinion around the world. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's certainly the case. Um, I, I as an economist don't uh, I'm not sure how to quantify that, but but uh, lobbyists and uh, uh, stakeholders. Um, uh, interest groups that ha- are powerful because their industries generate a lot of revenue uh, have a lot of uh, financial uh, resources to try to influence political processes, and that's been true for um, for several decades. As the the IPCC and the the the, the evolving efforts to come to an agreement um, have developed, their their Many cases of of that kind of thing uh, happening internationally and nationally. Oil companies that for a long time have uh, have tried to undermine the science on on climate change. So yeah, there there are some big political obstacles as well. So
0: you know, one of your central theses is that uh, because of all of these reasons, global. Uh, accords so far have not been successful. The the one that theoretically is the most far-reaching is now a couple years old, the, the Paris Climate Accords. What was the idea behind that framework? What was it supposed to
1: accomplish? Well, yeah, it was uh, an international environmental treaty uh, or the idea that we could move toward a treaty where all countries uh, would would join and agree to a certain set of emissions reductions and uh, because of the reluctance of countries to um, wholeheartedly adopt uh, strict uh, uh, strict regulations or incentive-based policies to do that, um, it sort of moved along with a, a, a set of, of commitments, but they're not enforceable. Um, we don't yet have any kind of Basis for enforcing um, commitments uh, in other countries. No, no penalties. Nothing like that. And in fact, you know, it, it, one of the things that's really difficult about interna- international environmental uh, uh, treaties is that you know these are sovereign nations. They don't, um, we they can't be forced by other countries. They can uh, they can sign to a treaty, and two years later they can decide to uh, to drop out. So. So getting so many countries around the world to um, to agree to firm commitments to reduce greenhouse gases is a is a tough sell. And and we've seen since um, you know the first efforts in the early 90s, uh, a lot of effort, a lot of talk, a lot of intention, I think. Um, but but nothing, con- very little concrete. The, the, um, in terms of a measure of how far we've come in terms of actually uh, introducing uh, restrictions on greenhouse gases, there's a, a measure of the average global carbon uh, tax um, that should right now, if we wanted to stabilize the climate, should be $40 or $50 a ton of carbon. The global average is, is somewhere between $1 and $2 a ton and that global level that we need to achieve to stabilize the climate is rising faster than that um, estimate of the actual average commitment. So we're we're getting, the, the target is getting farther away. We're not getting closer to it. Hmm.
0: I know that you are an economist, not a lawyer, but can you remind us the, the basics of what suits, like those brought by our, our children's trust are arguing and and why you think this globally is maybe a, a more effective strategy?
1: Sure. Um, I, as you said, I'm not a, a lawyer, but um, it's it's an important aspect of of the the ideas I put together in this paper. Um, and I guess I wouldn't say that it's a more constructive way to go, but I think the 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 economic analysis what I The conclusion I came to pulling together economics, political science and other other social science analyses was that the the process that has led us to the Paris Agreement is not going to be successful. Um, This other legal tool might be the kind of thing that if it were to spread uh, across more jurisdictions could add leverage and enough leverage to change that dynamic, to make it possible to uh, come to agreements in many countries and move in the direction of an effective uh, climate policy um, overall. Um, And the argument is not, is that we, um, the argument being made in many cases where these lawsuits are are suing governments is that the, the existing laws, existing constitutions Properly interpreted, already call for protection of, of, of the protections that a stable climate would give, on a basis of human rights, on a basis basis of equal protection, on the kinds of things um, the the clauses in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, most recently, in a case in Montana, the state constitution, it was found that the the state constitution of Montana. Um, should be interpreted as as requiring the state to take actions to protect um, for children, for for all people in in Montana, um, to protect a stable climate because um, a stable climate is necessary for um, you know the, the the human rights and and other responsibilities that, that the governments have to uh, have to uphold. And I should note that uh, back
0: in the middle of August, we did talk about um, that first win, that that Montana state court win um, by lawyers at our children's trust. So folks can listen to that in-depth conversation about that, the legal strategy there and the potential ramifications of that. That win, uh, obviously it is it's it is being appealed and so there are still a lot of questions even just for that one state. But even, I mean, that fact, I guess, leads to the next question, which is that's one state among 50 in one country among, you know, nearly 200 at the UN. What does the international legal scene look like in terms of this kind of legal idea?
1: Well, it's a, it seems to be a fast-moving... Um uh, issue around the world. There are uh, there are a couple of, of uh, centers, law centers that are monitoring these cases. And, you know, every month there are a couple of new cases being brought in countries around the world related to climate change um, litigation. There's been a few successes elsewhere in the Netherlands. There was an important case where an environmental group brought suit against the government and the court, the high court in the Netherlands found in their favor and and made it clear the government has to take action under a European uh, human rights uh, convention uh, to do their part uh, uh, as one of the nations in Europe um, to act to protect the climate as as best they can. Um, In Pakistan, there was also a case where uh, a Pakistani farmer sued the national government uh for failure to carry out a national climate change policy and uh and also one uh in, in that case um claiming that the that the climate change had immediate impacts on pakistan's water food energy security and that and that basically a fundamental right to life and so that lawsuit was also um uh, successful but one of the ways I, I know it, it can think, seem like okay, we have Montana, we have uh, the Juliana case from Oregon still, you know, perhaps in limbo. Uh, Netherlands, Pakistan. How can we get in, in a reasonable period of time? How can we get to the point where these legal cases might actually add the leverage we need to reinforce um, the, the policy prescriptions for for. Uh, carbon taxes or or cap and trade. As I understand it, there's a legal concept called persuasive authority, and it it seems to me it basically means that courts uh, learn from one one another. They read each other's opinions. There's cross fertilization, and so that um, that it both both uh, within countries and and internationally. And so the the case in Montana, the case in the Netherlands, the Juliana case. Even though the Giuliana case isn't finished and hasn't, you know, been successful as of yet, um, some of the rulings along the way um, provide provide evidence, provide arguments, and are persuasive, and that can influence other countries. So there can be kind of a, a I don't know contagion effect. Hmm. Finally, I, just, I want to go back to the issues we were talking about
0: before: the disconnect between the perceived near-term cost of climate action and the longer-term benefits. I guess I'm wondering if it's possible that as more and more people around the world experience climate chaos in any number of forms, heat waves and drought and wildfires and smoke and flooding and hurricanes, if we could just see a fundamental shift in the entire calculus that you were describing –
1: well, the the one way in which I mean that's a that's a um, uh, that's an interesting uh, idea, and I think the one way in which, from my perspective, it it might um, uh, it, it might carry some weight, and that is that the models I used in my analysis that estimate and project the damages from climate change, those are models that were mostly built. Uh, You know, well, they've been updated, but they they, they're models that were that were built early on, um, say, a couple of decades ago. And most of the estimates for for how the damage of from climate change would evolve did not include much in the way of extreme weather events and the kind of things, the kinds of things that you were just uh, pointing to, and I think yes, I think what what we've seen here in Oregon over the last decade and around the country in terms of wildfires and smoke, and hurricanes and floods and droughts, um, there is, uh, I think, a change in the perception of how climate change will affect us. Not just warmer temperatures and uh, ski resorts going out of business because there isn't enough snow. But these um, extreme, violent kinds of of uh, weather events uh, that that take lives, um, yeah, I, I think I think you make a good point, and uh, and we'll just have to see how that how that pans out. Bill Jager, thanks very much.
0: Sure, thank you. Bill Jager is a professor of applied economics at Oregon State University. Tomorrow on the show, Washington County Animal Services in Hillsboro was recently named the 2023 Animal Control Agency of the Year. We'll hear from the manager of the agency about their work in the county and how the animal control industry has changed over the years. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation.